0: A high, a high of 72, chance of showers and patchy fog.
1: Join me September 18th for a very special edition of Let's Talk Vets. We'll share some of the sights and sounds we experienced during the American Veterans Traveling Tribute Wall Visit to Rock Hill. We'll also hear from Jim and Joy Senate of Rolling Thunder. This organization escorted the display from Woodburn to Rock Hill. That's Let's Talk Vets. 7 p.m. September the 18th, right here on WJFF, your community radio station.
2: You are listening to 90.5 FM WJFF, Jeffersonville, New York, and 94.5 FM W233AH, Bonicello, New York. Online at wjffradio.org. Serving the Catskills Northeast Pennsylvania, the upper Delaware and mid-Hudson
0: region. Live
1: from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. A jury in Fort Lauderdale has found a Chinese woman guilty on two counts of attempting to gain entry to Mar-a-Lago earlier this year. NPR's Greg Allen reports the woman, Yojing Zhang, faced up to six years in prison.
3: Zhang was convicted for unlawfully entering a restricted building and for making false statements to a federal officer. In March, she showed up at Mar-a-Lago, President Trump's private club in Palm Beach, telling a Secret Service agent she was there to use the pool. She had purchased a ticket to a fundraising event at the club, an event that had been canceled. The Secret Service allowed her to enter, thinking she was a relative of a club member. Once Zhang was inside, a club receptionist determined she wasn't a member or authorized guest. Agents took her into custody, finding in her hotel room four cell phones and other electronic devices. At the trial, Zhang fired her public defenders and insisted on representing herself. She'll be sentenced in November. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami.
1: Vice President Mike Pence today credited the crew and passengers who fought back against hijackers on September 11th, helping to prevent even more deaths. Pence making his remarks at the Flight 93 Memorial near Shanksville, Pennsylvania, which marks the spot where they brought the plane down. All 40 passengers and crew members died that day. Officials later concluded the hijackers had been aiming for Washington, D.C. Harris also flew two jetliners into the World Trade Center in New York and another plane into the Pentagon. All told, nearly 3,000 people died in the worst terror attack ever on U.S. soil. The Food and Drug Administration says it will ban vaping products that have flavors other than tobacco. NPR's Richard Harris says it's in response to an
4: epidemic of teen vaping. Many adults seek out vaping products as an alternative to cigarettes, but for teens, vaping is a powerful new route to nicotine addiction. Kids in middle school and high school are particularly drawn in by flavored products, bubblegum, mint, menthol, and others. The White House has approved a new plan to take those enticing flavored products off the market. Tobacco-flavored vaping products will still be permitted for sale to adults, but the Secretary of Health and Human Services says if companies start to market those products to teens, the FDA could take action there as well. Details are expected in the coming weeks. Richard Harris, NPR News. President Donald
1: Trump is again going after his favorite target, the interest rate-setting Federal Reserve and its chairman, Jerome Powell. Trump in a message on Twitter today taking the central bank to task, saying the U.S. is missing out economically because, in his words, the boneheads at the Federal Reserve won't lower rates further. Trump has been pressuring Powell and other Fed members to push interest rates down to zero and possibly even lower. Stocks moved broadly higher today amid word China is moving to exempt some U.S. products from a recent round of tariffs. The Dow up 227 points. The Nasdaq was up 85 points. The S&P rose 21 points. This is NPR.
5: Let's Talk Vets with Doug Sandberg. Usually airs the second Wednesday of the month. Doug is currently at the special 9-11 ceremony and Vietnam Wall event that is happening in Rock Hill tonight, and he's reporting on that to bring you Let's Talk Vets next week at this time. So make sure you tune in September 18th for that.
6: All right, everyone. It's Wednesday, September 11th the attitude with Arnie Arneson and Ken Barnes. A uh, little rain this morning, but a relatively nice day today. Uh, maybe a, a nice day to sort of remember a horrific event on September 11th. And, you know, it, it's so funny, Ken. Um, my husband was talking to his son in Brooklyn, and his son was standing on the steps of his new apartment in Brooklyn. He'd moved to Brooklyn just like three or four days before. And as they were talking, he said, Dad, a plane. A plane. It just hit the World Trade Center, and mm. my father, my husband's going oh that 's no oh, that 's not possible and right. then they were continuing the conversation, and then Nick started screaming going it 's another dad it 's dad he, he, he just he just he just couldn 't comprehend what he was seeing how old is he um, at, well now he 's working at no, NHPR then. so back then he had just graduated from college and he had moved to Brooklyn, it was his new life and his new just job, and he 'd gone to emerson yeah, and yeah. and this was sort of this was his welcome. And he's looking, and he is—he's beyond shocked and despair. And um, so that was—I remember Marty just screaming, going, "Oh my God! Oh my God!" Anyway, um, so what are your thoughts for today, other than obviously the sombering thoughts of
0: 9/11? Well, every time it gets to 9/11, and I realize it's another anniversary, my heart breaks. It is just so tragic. I listened to the part of the memorial service in New York this morning mm-hmm. and you know they're reading the names of the victims and it's like endless you know, know there's thousands of people and they're reading the names and they're clinging a bell after each one and just think about it each one is a person and they right. had speakers uh some of whom were related in some way to some of the vi- well probably all of them were related in some way to some of the victims and right. one was a little girl yep. there with her mother and she was maybe 10 and she was talking about her father and yeah. and uh, his death. It was really chilling, really chilling, uh, I have to say. And you're talking about where you were at the time. I remember having the exact same reaction as Nick, your stepson. I was at a
6: Because you were in New event. York then, were
0: you? Well, no, I was in Wachusett, Massachusetts with a bunch of trainers. We were going to give a, a, an advanced litigation training yeah. to legal aid lawyers, and somebody came in and whispered to the leader of one of the sessions and she stopped the session and told us that the plane had flown into the world training center i remember feeling the exact same way as nick you know that's, that's okay. not possible
6: it's not, i mean you're looking at it it's
0: just not possible you're, you're, what you it is not about? possible
6: yeah exactly and
0: exactly. then we we took a break obviously call our loved ones and i went out and there was a tv monitor right. that showed it and i watched it happen and it was like holy you know yeah. what it really did happen and then the second one was equally stunning and then the building falling down you just can't believe it you just can't really believe that that is happening
6: so you've got to remember that my uncle was in the airplane that went into the Mm. empire state building Mm. so when i heard that a plane hit the world trade center i'm processing it like what had happened with my uncle in the empire state building that it would not i mean some people would die but the cataclysmic events that we ended up seeing happening at the World Trade that didn't even process. All I kept thinking about was the Empire State Building. You know, twelve people died. But right, then I right. suddenly realized, oh my God, this is this is on a level I can't even comprehend.
0: Right, so, right. And yeah. and then the other piece of it, Arnie, that I was thinking of this morning is that at the time. It, after you process the tragic nature of it and wonder whether they're going to find people still in the rubble right. and all of that. But that was a time, if you remember, when all of the world, the not just this entire country, but the entire world were with us. That right. We were all one. We were all New Yorkers. We were all Americans, whatever. We're all human beings. and we wasted and a horrific we, event and and but we were all together feeling it together and feeling like we're compadres we're we're yeah. support try to support each other as much as we can we're all thinking about each other and Contrast that with today, when our country is just like a pariah in the entire world, and within this country, the country is not exactly cohesive, it's totally alienated from one another, and just the contrast of we could still be all together if we behaved in a way that was as compassionate as we all felt on 9-11, 2001?
6: I I posted two articles. One was an article by uh, an opinion piece by Molly Ivins written in 2005, looking back on 9-11. I posted that today. Mm -hmm. You need to read it. I posted today an article by Bob Henley, the guy that we just love from New York, who talked about the the lies after 9-11. And I think you need to read those because if you want to understand how everything has shredded... Uh, unfortunately, government officials aided and abetted the shredding. They Mm -hmm. did not figure out how to build on that opportunity of unity. Instead, what they used it, they used it as a divisive cudgel. And that is what is so depressing. And they lied to us about the environment around, um, the the World Trade Center. There's just so many things, everyone. So Mm -hmm. as we mourn and ache, we also need to realize that instead of, instead of making this something where we could build, we used it in a way that was so destructive. Right.
0: Oh, right. Exactly. Yeah. So before I call the first guest, I just have to tell you one thing I heard on Ian Masters this morning. Okay. He, he had a guest who they were talking about Bolton was fired yeah. and Pompeo <laughs> is now the lead right.
6: foreign Pompeo. policy He's everything. He's the octopus. Person.
0: And, and this guy, this guest said, Pompeo is a heat-seeking missile targeting Trump's ass.
6: <gasps> That's brilliant! Oh my God! Give me that! Just, I'm going to post it on Facebook. I just Give had to share the, that. With oh you. my God! He nailed it! He, whoever you are, you're a genius. All right. Well, I am not such a genius. So, uh, in honor of the ache of 9/11, everyone, um, I decided to grab the poem by Billy Collins in called "The Names," and I'm going to read it before we grab our first guest. Yesterday, I lay awake in the palm of the night. A soft rain stole in, unhelped by any breeze. And when I saw the silver glaze on the windows, I started with A, with Ackerman, as it happened, then Baxter and Calabro, Davis and Eberling. Names falling into place as droplets fell through the dark. Names printed on the ceiling of the night. Names slipping around a watery bend. Twenty-six willows on the banks of a stream, In the morning I walked out barefoot among thousands of flowers, heavy with dew, like the eyes of tears, and each had a name, Fiori inscribed on a yellow petal, then Gonzales and Han, and Ishkawawa and Jenkins, names written in the air and stitched into the cloth of the day, a name under a photograph taped to a mailbox, monogram on a torn shirt. I see you spelled out on a storefront window and on the bright, unfurled awnings of this city, I saw the syllabus as I turned a corner. Kelly and Lee, Medina, Nardella, and O'Connor. When I peer into the woods, I see a thick tangle where letters are hidden, as in a puzzle concocted for children. Parker and Quigley in the... Hold on, everyone, I'm just going to try to grab our guest. I apologize. Parker and Quigley in the twigs of an ash. Rizzo, Schubert, Taurus, and Upton. Secrets in the boughs of an ancient maple. Names written in the pale sky. Names rising in the updraft amid buildings. Names silent in stone, or cried out behind a door. Names blown over the earth and out to sea in the evening. Weakening light, the last swallows. A boy on a lake lifts his oars. A woman by a window puts a match to a candle. And the names are outlined on the rose clouds. Vanacore and Wallace. Let X stand, if it can, for the ones unfound. Then Young and Zeminski, the final jolt of Z. Names to etch on the head of a pin. One name spanning a bridge, another undergoing a tunnel. A blue name into the skin. Names of citizens, workers, mothers and fathers. The bright-eyed daughter, the quick son. Alphabet of names in a green field. Names in the small tracks of birds. Name lifted from a hat or balanced on the tip of the tongue. Names wheeled into the dim warehouse of memory so many names there is barely room on the walls of the heart this poem i'm gonna cry this poem is dedicated to the victims of september 11th and to their survivors billy collins oh my god oh my god (laughs) all right everyone i i apologize to our first guest harold i don't mean to cry but this is such a such a difficult day 9-11 for all of us and and I just needed to make sure that I could thread the needle. So let me welcome Harold Cook to the program. Let me thank um, my good friend Scott Braddock for connecting me to Harold. We are on a radio station in Houston, Texas, a huge radio station at the early morning hours where I'm sure every trucker and every nurse who's leaving their shift or someone waking their kids up in the morning is listening to us. Uh, but the reason we're grabbing Harold is because um, he has a connection to a New documentary that has come out, and the documentary is about a woman who I totally, totally adore. Her name Molly Ivins. She died, I believe it was in, I think it's 2007. And, um, and Harold, you're in this documentary, How Lucky Are You. You are a friend of Molly Ivins. How lucky are you? And what you need to know is that in 1991, I began my run for governor. And as I was beginning my run for governor, someone handed me the newly published book by Molly Ivins. Molly Ivins can't say that, can she? And I suddenly realized the reason why they handed me the book Was that was going to be not only my roadmap for running for governor, but my roadmap for life, and it actually has been. So let me welcome you to the program, Harold. How are you?
2: Well, I'm glad to be with you, and it's a
6: great, it's a great roadmap.
2: Uh, to
6: live by. It is a great ma- roadmap to live by. So, Harold, tell us a little bit about you. I went and I grabbed your fi- uh, your Twitter feed and I looked at how you described yourself on Twitter and I started to laugh because you describe yourself as a regular contributor on the Capital Tonight Show on Spectrum News, Austin, San Antonio, a progressive Texan in a bad mood, politics guy, and my favorite and stuffed pointer outer (laughs) it was like so terrific so um so so tell me a little bit about you and your relationship and this woman who clearly um was bigger than life had an opinion about everything and knew how to use humor and knew how to use her genius to make us both sort of understand our world and maybe feel bad for what we're not fixing
2: yeah, that isn't that the truth. Look, I got to know her before she got famous, and it kind of snuck up on me. Uh, I, I met her in uh, in the late '80s when she was just a regular newspaper columnist, and there was no such thing as a famous news, newspaper columnist. Uh, she it was another couple of years before she landed on the. New York Times bestseller list and started getting really, really famous in a national way. But by then, she and I were already friends, and, and I just didn't think of her that way. Yeah. I just kind of thought of her as my very opinionated, foul-mouthed friend, which, uh, uh, which was delightful. Uh, but I, but over time, it became impass- impossible to miss where I mean, she was just gathering crowds everywhere she went, like a rock star. I didn't even know that was possible for a print reporter.
6: Yeah, it's it is it is absolutely amazing. So when I was getting ready for uh, for you and the documentary and the story of her life, I actually pulled a couple of things out. I pulled um, her piece that she wrote about nine eleven. In 2005, I thought, how appropriate. Let me thread the needle. I know she had to have written about it. And, of course, she's so prolific and has an opinion about everything. And, of course, it was a story about the man that she referred to as the shrub. Um, uh, so uh, so what, I, what I thought was fascinating is, is that she talks about what George Bush did after 9-11. And I wanted to sort of share this with you. She writes, without consulting the Congress, the courts, or the people, the president decided to use secret branches of government to spy on the American people. He is, of course, using 9-11 to justify his actions in this, as he does for everything else. 9-11 happened, so the Constitution does not apply. 9-11 happened, so there is no separation of powers. 9-11 happened, so 200 years of experience curbing the executive power of government is something we now overlook. That the President of the United States unconstitutionally usurped power is not in dispute. He and his attorney general both claim he has the right to do so on the account is that he is the president. And as I'm reading her, Harold, I'm going, oh, my God, what do I feel like in a lot of ways? He could have put Donald Trump's name into every single sentence that she just wrote. She would have been out of her mind if she was able to be so acerbic about the Bushes. Imagine what she could have done with Donald Trump.
2: I don't think she could have imagined a world in which, which was worse than George W. Bush. But mm-hmm. we find ourselves in one now, uh, in my opinion. But her theme in that column that you just read was a recurring theme, theme with her. Nothing was more important to her than the Bill of Rights, and uh, and she uh, she would frequently speak about uh, the, thr- the threats that face America, both real and imagined, yeah. and, and about how the, the recurring theme that happens over and over and over again in American politics, where too often our reaction to those threats is to make ourselves less free yes. a- instead of making ourselves more safe. Uh, and we made mistake that for safe, and, and it really bothered her to a deep degree. And and I don't know that she was ever more uh, bothered by it than the run up after nine eleven and the reaction to that.
6: And th- and that I mean I'll be honest with you that 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 took in- incredible courage to be able to say that because. In so many ways, we were so slavish to the reactions of the president because of that fear. And she understood what fear would do. But I think she was absolutely furious because she saw politicians then abuse that fear and use it to basically, you know, add uh, add to their power as opposed to protect. You know, they both begin with P, but they don't have the same result.
2: Well, and she and she was made to pay for that, too. I I, I will say that, you know, she was. Very early to the game post nine eleven about the cautions she provided us in ignoring the Constitution right. and, and and all the protections that it provides and and the result of that was was that you know she was carried in hundreds of those newspapers across the United States and and most of those papers Drop had her. exclusive deals in their markets for to carry their her column they would pay for the column and then specifically not rerun it oh. and since mm-hmm. they bought it it also prevented the other newspaper in the same market from from carrying oh. it either and i mean the, there were oh. many 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 editors across the united states uh trying to silence her
6: well, you know, l- let me just share uh, a 9-11 thing, because as, we're, as you're talking about the fact that, I mean, this was her courage. She was willing to speak this truth to power. So remember right after 9-11 when Bush basically called us to prayer, remember? So we had a day of prayer, and I am on a radio station, Harold, that where I replaced Rush Limbaugh on five stations in the central part of New Hampshire because they had lost the Rush contract. Now, can you imagine going from Rush to Arnie? I mean, talk about—I mean, we're talking about two different. I mean, you—you you, you can comprehend it, okay? So you go, and in a way, he was says, "Don't get mad, get even." I'm going. I'm not sure this is even. I remember saying to my boss, but it's—it's it's right after nine eleven, and so George, so Bush calls us to pray, and I remember being so upset, and I said on my radio station that day, "My president can call me to war." He can tell me to pay taxes. I went through this whole litany of things that my president can do. But my president does not call me to prayer. I said, because there is a separation between church and state. That is something I choose to do, not something that he tells me to do. I said, and frankly, on this day, how does a Muslim go to their place of worship and feel safe? All right. So you need to know what happened. People started trying to get me off the air. Pickup trucks with guns went around the radio station. I mean, you can't even imagine it. So as you're talking about the fact that Molly was so conscious of the Bill of Rights and so willing to speak this truth, I know what it feels like to understand that level of vulnerability and knowing you have to speak your truth and knowing that it may be a career ender.
2: Well, Molly kind of slid into it sideways because of her extensive use of humor so she was a little disarming on that front but it still made people angry uh it just didn't make them as angry as quickly as if she had approached it in a different sort of way right but i will say this if you are first to the game in speaking difficult truths at a very emotional time when people are feeling feeling threatened, I can only imagine how lonely that must have felt
6: to, oh to Molly Ivins. Oh no, I I I I that that's why she was my roadmap. You have no idea. It was like so important that I knew that I wasn't alone. (laughs) Isn't that funny? And I started writing for the Boston Globe in 1997, and I remember kept thinking, Channel Molly, Channel Molly, you know? And and you're absolutely right about humor. I mean, Harold, I I, when I was running for governor, I was running during the worst economic downturn since the Great Depression, and going in and talking to groups about how horrific it was was a very difficult thing. And I remember once after speaking at a rotary, uh, some guy walked me to my car and he said, to me, Arnie, I'm really confused. And I said, why? He said, I can't decide whether I want you to be my governor or a stand-up comic. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> because, because again, that's, that way of humor, what I think Molly understood about humor, and get, t- tell me if I'm wrong, is that people will open up when they can smile. And even if you have to deliver medicine or bad news, because you've done it first with humor, you've actually laid a foundation for them to hear you. That,
2: that's exactly what she thought, and it was probably a good thing that she was right, because I'm not sure she could have done it any other way, because that was her strength, and she was going to play to her strength no matter what. But but I will say, you you just alluded, alluded to this, and I want to bring it up for a second. It, it, I think it's really key, key to understanding her importance at that time, which was that a lot of newspapers across the United States that served very conservative areas of the country did carry her column yes uh, and and after she passed away i bet i got hundreds and hundreds of emails uh and over social media and every other way from people i'd never heard of from from middle america uh and they all said the exact same thing without knowing that anybody else existed who felt the same way, and they all said the same thing, and it was something like this. I loved Molly Ivins because before I read her stuff, I thought I was crazy. I thought I was the only one, and so she made a different point of view accessible and, and approachable to people. Who lived in areas where there just weren't a whole bunch of progressives.
6: Exactly, absolutely, absolutely. And you are in the new documentary, Raise Hell The Life and Times of Molly Ivins. How lucky are you? One thing before I let you go, Harold. So you were her friend before she became famous. How did she survive her own personal demons? She came from such an interesting conservative family in Houston. Obviously, her father was the political opposite of her, I, and yet he was such a huge influence on her life. Was that maybe in part what drove her to be able to sort of take this fight and not be afraid?
2: I think a lot of it was that. And, and, and I don't come from a dissimilar background. I come from a very conservative family, and I'm a progressive And and frankly, I'm not sure I would have been, but for the fact that my parents couldn't really defend their own positions. And and I think she would feel a lot the same way Uh, in the South. Too often, it was almost invariably always about race uh, when he got right right down to it, which was impossible to defend uh, just rank prejudice. And, And so it made things more obvious now i don't I don't think she would have considered any of that to be demons, though. I think it was just uh, interesting problems to be addressed okay. and 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 bring it out into the light and talk about it and write about it and make it interesting. That's kind of the way she thought about
6: things. Well, I'll let you know that when, uh, I, when I was writing for Congress, my conservative reactionary father, who had pictures of Newt Gingrich on the wall and Ronald Reagan in our house, had three bumper stickers on his car. You ready for this, Harold? One mm-hmm. said, ABC, anything but Clinton. The other one said, don't believe the liberal media. And the third one said, Arnie for Congress. And I remember <laughs> looking at the back of his car going, I think one of those don't belong. Anyway, Harold <laughs> Cook, uh, I would love to meet you someday. I am so jealous that you could call Molly Ivins' friend. she He is in the uh, documentary just released uh, about Molly Ivins, Ray's Hell, The Life and Times of Molly Ivins. Thank you so much for joining us, and thank you for being a friend of Scott Braddock.
2: Thank you. It was fun. Thank it you.
6: was a pleasure, Joe. All right, everyone, a little labor history is next. This is The Attitude with Artie Artist and a producer Ken Barnes.
3: I'm Rick Smith. And this is Labor History in 2. On this day in labor history, the year was 2001. We pause to remember those who died in the 9-11 attacks. Of those killed, nearly a quarter were union people. Hundreds of firefighters were lost, dozens of building tradespeople, and many other unions lost members as well, including the AFT, SEIU, Unite Here, CWA, and AFSMIT. Those lost that day will remain firmly forever in our memories. What is less well-known is the number of those first responders who are suffering from chronic and fatal diseases related to 9-11 or those who have already died. It is estimated that over 400,000 people were exposed to World Trade Center contaminants. These include more than 70 carcinogens and other hazardous substances. Of those exposed, over 91,000 were first responders. As of June 2017, over 67,000 first responders and over 12,000 survivors had registered in the World Trade Center Health Program run by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The program provides medical monitoring, health evaluations, and treatment for those who qualify. Of those registered responders still alive, more than 45,000 suffer from certified conditions as defined by the Zadroga Act of 2010. And for registered survivors, nearly 10,000 suffer from certified conditions. Close to 700 registered first responders have already died from certified conditions. However, this number is considered a low estimate given that there were many who died before the program was established. There are also a number number of illnesses believed related to the attacks, but not yet certified. If you are a survivor or were a 9-11 first responder and would like to enroll in the World Trade Center health program, please visit cdc.gov WTC or call toll free
4: 1-888-982-4748. I'm Dr. Anthony Lajewitz, and this is Climate Connections. Last December 11th at 11am, Mary Beth Downing of Boulder, Colorado stood outside her state capitol and rang a bell. She did it to express her concern about climate change.
6: And then people looked at me strangely, but it felt like, okay, it feels like a right thing, a good thing.
4: So she sent an email to members of her Methodist Church community.
6: When I said, here's a crazy idea, anybody want to join me on the 11th day of every month at 11 o'clock to raise an awareness, raise an alarm?
4: It was the start of a monthly interfaith event called the 11th Hour Calling. Participants ring the large bell at a local church. Across the street, members of a Buddhist center respond by striking their gong.
6: We ring the bells and strike the gongs in response back and forth for 11 minutes. And we hand out flyers, we have protest signs, you know, just trying to draw attention to the fact this is what we're doing, this is why we're doing it.
4: She says it's an opportunity for people to come together, confront their fears about global warming, and renew their commitment to action. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. Learn more at YaleClimateConnections.org.
5: You're listening to The Attitude with Arnie Arneson. Just a quick reminder that Let's Talk Vets with Doug Sandberg usually airs the second Wednesday of the month. Doug is currently at the special 9-11 ceremony and Vietnam Wall event that is happening in Rock Hill tonight and he's reporting on that to bring you Let's Talk Vets next week at this time. So make sure you tune in September 18th for that.
7: I owe do you know the names of the U.S. residents who then became the president and got a view from the White House new of Pennsylvania Avenue. George Washington was the first, you see. He once chopped down a cherry tree. President number two would be John Adams, and then number three. John Jefferson stayed up to write the Constitution late at night. So he and his wife had a great big fight, and she made him sleep on the couch all night. Jim Madison never had a son, and he fought the war of 1812. James Monroe's colossal nose was bigger than Pinocchio. John Quincy Adams was number six, and it's Andrew Jackson's, but he kicks. So Jackson learns to play politics. Next time he's the one that the country picks. You're a number eight For a one-term shot As chief of state William Harrison How do you praise That guy was dead In 30 days John Tyler He liked country folk And after him Came President Pope Zachary Taylor Liked to smoke His breath Killed friends Whenever he spoke 1850 Really nifty Miller Bill in. Young and fierce Was Franklin Pierce the man Without a chin Follows next up Period Spenning Four long years With James
6: all right, you get the drift. Uh, it's called The Presidents of the United States. This is The Attitude with Hardy Arnison and producer Ken Barris. Ken looks at me and goes, I don't know, it's satire. Somebody wrote it. I have no idea.
0: Am I right? Exactly. But uh, I had to pick this funny thing because totally our next guest and the book about the presidents, it's perfect. It's absolutely perfect.
6: <laughs> so joining me on the phone, someone I haven't talked to in a long time, Brian Lamb, founder of C-SPAN, retired this year, 2019. How is C-SPAN going to exist? without Brian Lamb, but apparently they're not. You're still putting together books and doing interviews. You can't leave, Brian. You know that. Welcome to the program. Hi, Arnie. How you doing? One of our C-SPAN stars. Oh, listen, I am, I am doing fine. So you have put together this book and a website about the president's noted historians rank America's best and worst chief executives. So, Brian, I have to share a story. And that is, you know, I live in Concord, New Hampshire, and, um, I ended up inheriting a house. And the house was originally purchased from a very powerful political couple in my state. Uh, he was the Democrat. She was the Republican. She was the first female Republican majority leader in state history. And he was a Democratic operative and a friend of Bill Clinton and yada, yada, yada. So when we were purchasing the house for my aunt, uh, I remember that we were going to offer him an incredibly low bid on the house because we couldn't afford it. And after I wrote three pages of an apologia, here's what I put at the end. But I promise you, Mr. Gross, that this House will always be open and available to presidents in waiting. And why did I say that? because Jimmy Carter slept in the second bedroom, because we had the Al Gore bathroom, because Bob Dole and Bill Clinton and all these cast of presidential wannabes had actually spoken in that house. And that house had such an important role, not only in the New Hampshire primary, but what would ultimately affect the rest of the country. So I want to let you know, you write the book and I sleep in it.
8: (laughs) So did you put a plaque on the wall in each one of those rooms?
6: Oh, actually, you I will send you the plaque of Jimmy Carter because, as you know, Jimmy Carter always writes personal notes. And after he had spent the night in the house, he sent the former owner, Mr. Gross, a personal note, handwritten, thanking him for letting him stay there. And they actually also have, right next to that little tiny note on a plaque, a note from Walter Mondale thanking the family for letting him speak there. And I have pictures of Bill Clinton with his elbow on the mantelpiece where people scored Bill Clinton for the first time. And the reason I have an Al Gore bathroom, you're going to just plots. So Al Gore is vice president. He's coming to speak at the House. This is the story I was told. And the Secret Service come to the House. And they said, I'm sorry, Mr. Gross, but we're not going to allow uh, Al Gore, the vice president, to come. And the owner goes, oh, my God, you can't. I have like 150 people showing up. And he said, why can't he come? He said, because you have no safe room, Mr. Gross. And you know what a safe room is. It's a room without windows to the outside in case there's an assault on the house. So Mr. Gross goes, well, actually, I do. And he opens the door to something less than the size of a closet. And it's a bathroom with a little tiny triangular sink and a little tiny triangular toilet. And they said if there's an assault, we can throw him in here. <laughs> and we call it the Al Gore bathroom. So there you go. I mean, you write it, and I live it.
8: <laughs> why do you think that uh, so many people care about this stuff?
6: Why do we care? I think – so I think – you know why I think we care – Because I think we know that in this country, the impossible can be possible. That actually anyone can become president. You can look in the crib and realize that despite wealth or DNA or status or geography, that that ability to actually become such an important player on the world stage is possible. And that's not true in many places. And I think that level of love and hope and curiosity is what keeps us so engaged.
8: Do you have a favorite president?
6: Do I have a favorite president? Well, you know, I mean, number 1 was Abraham Lincoln. How can you not? Because he knew how to keep it simple and keep it powerful. And I think the the my favorite stories about him is that he also knew how to work with his enemies. And to me, the strength of a president is not what you do with your friends, is what you do with your opposition. Because in the end, that's going to actually dictate your ability to lead. And I think so as a role model, that aspect of Abraham Lincoln, both his ability to speak simply and to work with people that most of us would basically be offended by, I think is the best leadership skill you could possibly have.
8: But I'd love to hear Arnie Arneson say who her favorite president is in the last 30 years.
6: In the last thirty years, or forty years, or forty years, um. All right, so you know I am a sucker for Jimmy Carter. What am I going to tell you? You know what I love about Jimmy Carter? So my girlfriend was his first hire, and he she he was she was hired by him, and here was the contract: we're going to hire you for twenty-eight dollars a month and all the peanuts you can eat. I mean, (laughs) there's something about Carter with his sense of morality, his is. His ambition, but his not ambition. I mean, realize he was just the governor of Georgia for two years. Can you imagine? I mean, in a lot of ways. So there's, there's that aspect to him that I totally love. Um, and, and obviously the, how do I say this? So Barack Obama was remarkable and yet to me also disappointing. But I think, I think it's his coolness and his, his ability to, to be cool and emote, even at the same time? Isn't that ridiculous? But he's able to do both. So I, I, I and, and to me, the two of them represented the best of our moral conscience. And I think, I, I think what I feel is missing sometimes is our sense of morality and our ability to lift a nation to understand why that is the most important as we sort of try to navigate all the challenges of our future.
8: Have you ever been to Plains, Georgia, where Jimmy Carter emanated from
6: i've never been to plains georgia it sounds like i have to go
8: oh absolutely
6: yeah so who's your favorite brian lamb
8: well this is going to sound like a cop-out but i don't have one
6: well maybe it's because you got to know all of them you know what i mean it's kind of like you you got to see the choir (laughs) you're kind of like so so who surprised you the most I mean, I mean, as you were sort of looking into them and talking to historians and pulling together all the facts of these different people, and you've been doing politics your entire life practically, and because of C-SPAN, it has been so real and intimate with you because you've seen every aspect of it. You've seen its highest highs and its lowest lows, uh, and you do it 24-7, which is really what C-SPAN does, both at the local level and at the national level. So as you were talking to these people and pulling together the book, Brian, uh, did a president? Did a piece of a president surprise you because it was like, wow, I didn't understand that or I didn't know that nugget because it so explains who they are?
8: Well, there are a lot of them that have the nuggets that you just get very interested in when you learn about them. But the president probably that I, I think is the biggest surprise, and I find it to be very, very helpful to read it, is Harry Truman.
6: OK, now why?
8: It has nothing really to do with this policies so much, as he has material that he's left with us that you can go read that is the most direct of any president I've ever seen. Uh, And in spite of the fact that he was surrounded by, uh, let's say, corrupt people in in, uh, Missouri when he was there, he was able to rise above that. And his image in history is, for my taste, just tremendous. And when David McCullough did the book on Truman, His last chapter was all about the fact that he had the uh, sense or whatever word you want to use to go home and stay home for 20 years and do nothing but build his library and read books and uh, not sell himself uh, to the commercial world. And I'll always uh, feel very strongly about that as a, a great role model for for the rest of us.
6: So, you know, as you look at the early presidents, you know, beginning with Washington, looking at the first ten presidents, who do you think was the most sort of outstanding as they, lo- as they put together the list? Obviously, George Washington could have easily had become a king. And so the idea that he could walk away, to me, was his greatest strength as much as anything else. But as you look at the early presidents with Adams and Jefferson – who, who who was most valued in that early set of characters?
8: Well, this is strictly me, but James Madison is my favorite in that period because of a lot of reasons, including the fact that he led the uh, the Constitutional Convention. But he also put it down on paper. And he, in some ways, and this I don't want to go too far with this, but in some ways he did the same kind of thing that we do. He put it down on paper. And now today you can go back and read it, uh, especially when, unfortunately, all the doors and windows and all were closed in the Constitutional Convention. Right, right. We're not very far here away from, as you know, the Mount Vernon, which is a fabulous facility. And I think in so many ways a a very good uh, symbol to what can be done by private people instead of federal taxpayer money. Uh, And it's the most popular of all the presidential sites. A million people go there a year. And it's all done by the Mount Vernon Ladies Association. And it's just a fabulous place. And they've just opened up a couple years ago the new library, which is all built by private money, $110 million. But George Washington, who I can't get my hands around personally, certainly uh, did things that really, really mattered to us.
6: Well, uh, it, it, it 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 absolutely did, but I, I you were mentioning McCullough, so I have to share my my sort of knowledge of the book of John Adams. So a friend of mine was a very good friend of David McCullough, and uh, originally talked to talked to McCullough about this. He was going to write a book about the relationship between Adams and Jefferson. And so he would call these friends of his as he was working on researching the book and researching the book. And about a year into his research, getting ready for this book about the relationship between Adams and Jefferson, one of his friends on the phone said to him, David, you're writing the wrong book. And he went, what? He said, you've fallen in love with Adams. The person you talk about every time you talk to us is about John Adams. And so there you get a little bit of the history of this remarkable writer who writes about John Adams. And it was so funny because the reason I love that is when every time I watch 1776 and I watch them sort of telling John Adams to sit down, I think, wow, I think I always channeled John Adams. <laughs> so it's so, it's so funny. So tell me about the people that you used to pull together the ratings. Because in the end, these are not, it's important for people to trust who you turn to. So who did you turn to?
8: Well, there's a list on our website of 90 people that are involved in teaching and in politics and in the media. Uh, I have to tell you that uh, the the main impetus for our first survey in 2000 was to find some balance. When Arthur Slezinger put this all together, Arthur Slezinger Sr. and then his son, he relied mostly on college professors and we all know college professors in almost all cases are center left and it seemed to be important to try to figure out a way to have more balance yep it doesn't it turns out that it doesn't really matter that much and you can on Wikipedia, if you have the time, you can right, go on All right, I
6: want every conservative to hear what you just said. You assumed that every college professor was center-left, and yet when you expanded the people that you talked to, it turned out it didn't really matter. That's an important statement, Brian Lamb. I just want to mm. I want to remind you. Well,
8: <laughs> we on. here are, and I am, I am no expert on yeah. uh, presidents, and uh, the only thing I'm an expert on is listening to historians tell me about history, yes. and, and, and I think that's what we've done for our audience. Uh, and so it turns out though, you can, as I was starting to say, you can go on Wikipedia and they have a chart that shows all the polls over the years. Huh? And, they, and not just ours, but all the different polls, and it's fun to just look and see where everybody comes down. And, and over the time that we've done these three different major polls, there are two or three people that have lost ground. Some have gained ground, number one is U.S. Grant, right. uh, has has gone well, from yes, being definitely. 33rd on the list to number 22. And I think you got to give some credit on that to guys like Ron Chernow and Ronald White, mm-hmm. because those books were magnificent. And I think people got more interested and looked at some of the positive things uh, somebody like Grant did other than just... Uh, the, the memoir that he did on the Civil War.
6: Right, right. So tell me, so tell me about, um, so John F. Kennedy, I want everyone to know, see so the, the list from, from your book, Abraham Lincoln is one, George Washington is two, Franklin Roosevelt is three, Theodore Roosevelt is four, Dwight Eisenhower is five, Harry Truman is six, Thomas Jefferson is seven, John F. Kennedy is eight. How did that happen? <laughs> I mean, it was so short. You know, and I'm trying to figure out, I mean, was it because he wanted to land a man on the moon and, uh, and not only said it but funded it? Was that the great thing that sort of put him into this, you know, top ten? It just seems that it, it, there wasn't enough time.
8: Well, I, I think you're right. But, you know, we don't ask each of the 90 people why they do anything. We just ask them to do it, and in in, in nobody knows specifically how they rated on each one of these I personally think, and I've been alive since, obviously, John F. Kennedy's assassination, I think that's had a tremendous impact on the way everybody views him. Yes. And he was only there, as you know, a thousand days. I suspect, based on what's come out about some of the personal things about him, that as time goes by, he may continue to drop from that top ten.
6: Yep. So you are lucky because you don't have to include Donald Trump. In this list because the book is out and Donald Trump is in the process of serving. Um, how does C-SPAN, how do you cover him? <laughs> I'm just trying, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, it, is, we are, it, is, it is an unusual presidency. There's no question about it. You know that and I know that. It's a presidency that basically is sort of defined by tweet. Um, There aren't your normal press conferences like we used to see with the press secretary. Um, It seems to be very campaign-driven and not policy-driven. And I'm trying to figure out how does C-SPAN determine what to cover and what not? Or is it just because the president shows up, so does a C-SPAN camera?
8: Well, I think the balance that we are able to accomplish with covering uh, President Trump is, first of all, just covering let people hear what he has to say. And then realize that as the process unfolds, we've covered everything on Capitol Hill.
6: Yes. There's hardly
8: a hearing that ever goes by that, whether it's run by the Democrats on the House side or the Republicans on the Senate side, that we don't cover. And we add to that a very important ingredient in all this. You know this. You live this every day. We add to that callers and the people out from away from Washington and people that love him and people that don't like him. And it all comes together allowing everybody to make up their own mind. We try not to ever... Deal with him with prejudice of any kind. Just let it happen and let the public decide.
6: Well, no, I mean, look, I've done Washington Journal a number of times. And, and I have to tell you, my favorite is when I'm like sort of a solo performer for a half an hour and you let me like handle all the calls because it's like I love it. And, and, and I'm, a, I'm a progressive. I'm a liberal. But having been raised on commercial radio where my audience was like the White Mountain Militia, um, I, I I really love to get the calls from the conservatives and the Republicans and the Republican line. Because in a lot of ways, it's it's a conversation I don't always get to have. And it's a conversation that, frankly, we are... We're less because of it. I mean, C-SPIN is one of the last places on the planet, you know that in America, where you get that diversity of calls. Commercial radio is dominated by conservatives. Public radio is dominated by more progressive and liberal base. And therefore, there's nothing where the two can meet. And C-SPIN is still the one place where, you know, all three flavors, you know, an an undecided, undeclared Republican or Democrat can actually call in and hear each other.
8: Well, you're right on target. And I've always felt when i hear people who are strongly on on either side i just say try to listen to the other side because yes. no one does that now
6: yes absolutely and i i i miss it you know it it, it commercial radio used to have variety you know, it used to have people like an Arnie Arneson on it, but you can tell I'm not on there anymore. And, and the reason was, was that it wasn't a place that was supported by advertisers, and, and it became sort of a, a, a silo for conservative voices. And I think that that actually hurts the conservatives as well as the liberals not to be able to be on the same dial and hear each other, which is the compliment I give to C-SPAN. But before I let you go, I know your book is about the presidents, but, Brian, we're talking on 9-11. So go back to that day. How did C-SPAN handle the horrific events of 9-11? How did you know what to cover, where to put the camera, what to do? I mean, we were all in such a state of shock and, and fear, and I can't even imagine what the challenge was for you. So go back to that day. Tell me about how C-SPAN responded.
8: Well, we were shocked, and for a short period of time, um, we thought the plane was coming to the Capitol, Right, uh, or come into the White House. Right, you know, we in those times, only thing we can do, two things we can do, put our cameras in front of people that are in the official government and let hear hear what they have to say, whether it's the president or the Congress or whatever. And the other thing we do often is just open the phones up and let people talk.
6: Yes, I uh, wow, you did. That. I
8: hosted a program the day after at six a.m. We don't normally start till seven. Wow and I think the call was I had a call within the first hour from a young man. It was about fifteen minutes long. It's still one of the most stunning things you've ever heard uh anybody do on any kind of public media because he went, had he said and he, you take him at his word that he went inside. After the, the planes flew into the tower and helped people get out and kept going back in and out, and he just went nonstop for 15 minutes, and it was the most dramatic thing you've, I've heard around 9-11. That's the least we can do, and everybody was trying, as you know at that time, to cover it, and, uh, yeah. but we're, you're in a state of shock.
6: You are. And and again, I want people to understand the value of what you just said. It's right after 9-11. You go on an hour early. You open up the phone lines so we all have a common place to emote, a common place to react, a common – and and that doesn't exist. And that, I think, is is truly the value of C-SPAN. I was on the air that day doing my radio show, but guess what I had done the day before, Brian Lamb? The day before, I was interviewing a rabbi from Israel, okay? And as I was interviewing him, I asked him what it was like to survive in a country where terrorism happened on a fairly regular basis. How do you put your children on a bus? How do you go to school? How do you go eat at a shop? How do you how do you how do you function with that cloud over you all the time? That was the day before 9/11. That day, that morning, and I have to go on the air at noon, I almost started to apologize, because I'm like, oh my God, look what I had done the day before, and look at the life we now have to live. So it was a, it was a very, very, very interesting time. So um, as you are in, quote-unquote, retirement, Brian Lamb, um, what is your greatest achievement, looking back?
8: Oh my goodness!
6: Come on, it's Arnie. I got to ask the big questions.
8: Well, I, I think it would only be one thing that we survived forty years, um, yeah. and, and just being a part of it has been, you know, what a learning experience for me personally. And, and I don't even consider it to be an achievement so much as, thank goodness, I got to have the experience.
6: And and the C spin that you originally sort of envisioned. Is it so much different today than what your original vision was? Or did you nail it from the beginning, knowing this is what we need, this is its potential, now we have to unleash it?
8: Well, the favorite thing for me about C-SPAN is that it was allowed to stay exactly how it started, and it hasn't had to change with uh, the way all the media and a lot of journalism has changed. It's still exactly the simple process that it was from the beginning, letting people see for themselves what go, goes on in this political world and government world and make up their own mind. Can, when, I, can I ask th- yes, a, a question?
0: Given your perspective and all you've seen and been involved with and your palpable wisdom, can you just tell us and tell the audience how you view 9 11 in perspective from however many years or decades before up until the present? How does it? Fit into the narrative of the United States and the world, and how things have changed.
8: This probably isn't the best answer what you're looking for, but I view Vietnam as having been uh, the worst thing that happened in my lifetime to this country, and I'm not sure we'll ever survived that or ever recovered from it. It's a better way of putting it. 9/11, uh, in my opinion. Uh, really upset the equilibrium of the country. And I've got to be careful how I say this, because it could be misinterpreted, but if I were Osama bin Laden, uh, other than the fact that the man is dead and and should be, uh, while he was alive, he probably looked and said, I've been incredibly successful. I've tried to bankrupt that country. Yes. And before it's over, I might have been successful doing that.
6: No, no, you, you said it right. You said it right, Brian Lamb. Brian Lamb, congratulations on your retirement. You've been doing this since 1979. Holy moly. Anyway, thank you so much for writing uh, and putting together the book, The Presidents. We'll make sure that people also know that they can go on the web and uh, check out more information about them. And, uh, and thank you for including me in C-SPAN. I always love doing it.
8: Thanks to both of you. Thank you, Arnie, very much. Joe. How do we
6: end?
0: Because of the Jerry Nadler announcement that they're going to actually start impeachment proceedings, this song is called Impeach the President by a group called the Honey Drippers.
6: The Honey Drippers. (laughs) Whatever, Arnie. Support comes from you and from the River Reporter newspaper in Narrowsburg, New York, riverreporter.com.
5: Support comes from you and from Wayne Memorial Hospital and Wayne Memorial Health System. More than 200 healthcare providers serving residents in Wayne, Pike, and Eastern Lackawanna counties in Pennsylvania and the upper Delaware region of New York State, wmh.org. WJFF, Jeffersonville, W233AH, Monticello.
4: This Week in This American Life, okay, picture this. A local Democrats club, it's also